welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in the same group. Hey, Gary. <laughs> hey, Kristen. So today we're going to jump back in Pillar 2 and cover a few of the key issues addressed in the second round of Pillar 2 administrative guidance that the OECD released on July 17th. We'll also get some updates from our resident Pillar 2 experts on the current state of play as Pillar 2 implementation moves forward, at least outside the U.S., and they'll share their insights on what to expect in the final stretch of 2023. For our discussion, we're once again joined by Kevin Brogan, a principal on KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, Marcus Heland, a principal in KPMG's WNT EVS Practice. For those of you who've been following the podcast for a while, you heard that right. Marcus is now a principal here at KPMG. Congrats, Marcus, on your well-deserved promotion, and thank you both for joining us again on the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having us. So for this installment of our ongoing Pillar 2 discussion, we're going to dive into the most recent administrative guidance released by the OECD in July, what we've been referring to in internal discussions as the July AG. You may recall that the first round of administrative guidance, which was released in February of this year, covered a slew of issues relating to the general globe computational rules, in addition to some important transition period considerations as countries continue their implementation efforts. The July AG, on the other hand, covers five main topics, providing additional guidance on some issues that the OECD had previously deferred on, as well as clarifications on the globe computations that are more broadly applicable. But before we jump into the July AG, Marcus, can you give us an update on where we are in terms of global implementation? Is there anything worth noting in some of the more high-profile jurisdictions that our listeners should be aware of? Thanks, Kristen. And as a general reminder, the timetable that's been agreed at the OECD level is for the income inclusion rule to take effect in 2024, and then for the backstop rule, the under tax profits rule to take effect one year later in 2025. And while there continues to be a flurry of consultation documents and draft legislation from jurisdictions around the world, the only jurisdictions that have actually enacted some aspects of the Pillar 2 rule so far is the UK, Japan, and South Korea. And the income inclusion rule as enacted in all of those jurisdictions is scheduled to take effect in 2024, so consistent with the OECD timeline. National legislation in the EU has moved slower than expected. No EU member state has enacted the rules uh, so far, but it remains the case that the EU directive requires member states to enact the income inclusion rule in the UTPR to take effect in 2024 and 2025, respectively. There has been some discussion about a delay within the EU to these effective dates, but that seems remote as it would seemingly require a new EU directive. South Korea, however, has committed to delaying its undertax profits rule to 2025. As the audience will recall, 
South Korea originally enacted a UTPR that took effect in 2024, which is one year earlier than the OECD agreement. So this delays that to 2025 consistent with the OECD level timeline. Now, it isn't official yet. Korea still needs to pass legislation to effectuate this delay, and it seems like that will happen sometime in December. There's also indications that some of the investment hubs may be considering delaying their QDMTTs to 2025. Singapore, for example, has already communicated that its QDMTT won't take effect before 2025, and I'll be watching to see if Switzerland and other jurisdictions follow that same trend. And then finally, there has been some movement in no CIT jurisdictions. Bermuda, for example, has released a proposal calling for a domestic tax that would take effect in 2025. And I think there are two themes to that Bermuda proposal. The first, it shows how big of an impact that Pillar 2 is having. If Bermuda is implementing a domestic tax, it would seem likely that jurisdictions such as the Cayman Islands and Bahamas and other no CIT jurisdictions will at least consider doing the same. And then the second aspect is that this Bermuda tax, as is proposed, would not be a QDMTT. And the main reason for that is that it takes into account shareholder level taxes like guilty and subpart F in the effective tax rate numerator, which is contrary to the OECD's QDMTT guidance. And this could become a trend in other jurisdictions, but so far there's no at least formal indications that any of the major investment hub jurisdictions are considering taking an approach similar to Bermuda. Instead, most of the major investment hubs have communicated an intent to implement a qualified domestic top of tax. So, Kristen, that's a brief rundown on what's happening around the world. Thanks, Marcus. Clearly lots of interesting stuff to unpack there, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of developments as we get closer to the end of the year. Now let's dive into the July AG. Marcus, can you give a high-level overview of the issues that this new round of guidance addresses? Sure. And as you said at the beginning, there's five main subjects that are addressed in the July administrative guidance. The first is that the guidance includes two new safe harbors. There is a transitional UTPR safe harbor and then also a permanent QDMTT safe harbor. The transitional UTPR safe harbor essentially provides that any top of tax under the UTPR is deemed to be zero in respect of the ultimate parent jurisdiction if the ultimate parent jurisdiction has a nominal corporate income tax rate of at least 20%. So for U.S.-based companies where the United States is the ultimate parent, because the corporate income tax rate is 21%, then U.S. income is effectively protected from the under-tax profits rule through 2025. So that was probably the most high-profile aspect of the July administrative guidance, is providing this transitional relief from the ultimate parent jurisdiction. And then the rules also included a QDMTT safe harbor, which moves any tax payable under that system from a credit mechanism to an exclusion approach. The rules also addressed the treatment of tax credits. Here, the guidance is clarifying how transferable credits in particular are treated. And this is very important because many of the credits that were included in the Inflation Reduction Act are transferable in nature. And there was questions as to how Pillar 2 would apply to those transferable credits. And so this guidance provides clarifications around that. Third, there was clarification provided around currency conversion rules. Also clarification provided on the substance-based income exclusion, dealing with 
certain assets that may be located in a jurisdiction some of the time or employees located in a jurisdiction some of the time, but then also in other jurisdictions part of the time. And so there's clarification provided around that. They also dealt with issues around stock-based compensation as relevant to the payroll component of the carve-out and also the treatment of leases as relevant to the tangible asset component of the carve-out. Also, and, and finally, the, the fifth area was additional guidance was provided on a qualified domestic topic tax and what it means to have a qualified rule. We know from the February guidance that there's a general principle that in order to achieve qualified status, the rules need to be functionally equivalent to the globe rules. But, you know, this guidance is starting to provide specific guidance in particular circumstances as to, you know, what functional equivalency means. And so more guidance provided in July around that. In the interest of time, I will stop there, but listeners can find a more detailed discussion of all of these issues in KPMG's tax news flash that was published in July. Thanks, Marcus. So you mentioned that the July AG addressed transferable credits. And the issue of transferable credits and their impact on the globe computation, as you mentioned, has gained significant importance since the Inflation Reduction Act, which introduced a range of transferable credits. The July AG addresses the treatment of transferable credits and in the process creates an alphabet soup of names for tax credits, QRTCs, QFTBs, MTTCs. So, Kevin, why are these credits so important from a globe calculation perspective, and what's the relevance of the different categories of credits? Thanks, Kristen. So, the categories are so important because credits have been identified by those U.S. multinationals or clients with U.S. operations as one of the chief reasons their ETR falls below the 15% minimum rate, where it does. Depending on the type of the credit, there's a very different impact in how the credit is taken into account under the ETR calculation. And so one being much favorable than the other, that is that you increase the credit to your denominator versus decrease the amount of the credit from your numerator. Classification into those two groups is very critical. Under the original Pillar 2 rules, where a credit was refundable in excess of your tax liability, within four years of qualifying for the credit, the credit was qualified as a qualified refundable tax credit and an increase to your denominator, the favorable treatment. The US didn't really have these and all other credits are treated as a reduction to your covered taxes and therefore unhelpful. So we saw in the February guidance that we got a classification for certain credits that came in not through consolidated investments, but through certain tax equity structures that U.S. multinationals held through the equity method that mitigated the impact of certain credits, namely LIHTC, that were non-refundable, where they resulted in a limited decrease to the numerator where the taxpayer only recovered its investment through the help of these credits. So their negative impact to the numerator was only to the extent of the taxpayer investing in the tax equity structure's return. That guidance did not address transferable credits, which were heretofore more or less unheard of. And the IRA came out with a slew of transferable credits that aren't refundable in excess of a taxpayer's tax liability, but may be transferred once and only once by the originator. So given that the credit may be cashed in on by the originator or transferred to somebody else who has no ability to transfer the credit, 
The credit really represents two different forms. One where it's transferable, one where it must be used only to satisfy tax liability. So for where it may be transferred by the originator, the credit is called an MTTC and classified like a qualified refundable tax credit, namely an increase to the denominator. Under the theory that it's the economic equivalent of getting a refund since the taxpayer is assured of getting the benefit of the credit, just like it would get a refundable credit by transferring it in the market to somebody who can use it. Now, once the credit has been transferred and it's not transferable again, it's no longer the economic equivalent of a refund because its use is limited to recovering against your tax liability. So in ordinary cases, be thought of as a reduction to your covered taxes. But luckily, the July guidance gave clear indication that since the taxpayer has paid for this credit in the market, it shouldn't be viewed as a full reduction to your covered taxes in the amount of the credit, but only to the extent the credit is in excess of your purchase price. That is, to the extent that the purchaser got a discount purchasing in the market. So obviously limiting the reduction to the amount of the discount is much more favorable than having to reduce your taxes by the full amount of the credit. So that category and non-MTTC is also much favorable compared with the residual category, which are OTCs, other tax credits. And there in the U.S., we're mainly left with the RMD credit, which is neither transferable nor refundable. That still remains a full reduction to cover taxes and therefore a potentially big detriment to calculating one's ETR for Pillar 2 purposes. And so therefore, that is one where taxpayers and the U.S. government alike are hoping for relief from the OECD inclusive framework at some point. But none is indicated to be forthcoming at this point. Thanks. So it seems that these rules would mainly apply to companies that generate or normally transfer these types of credits. Is there a particular industry or type of company that these rules will impact? And have you noticed any footfalls that companies are facing as they apply the new guidance? These generally would impact companies. Well, number one, the live tech credits generally are invested in by the banks. Of course, they could be invested in by others. Now, the other type of IRA credits are for those companies that invest in renewable energy credits, so carbon recapture, solar, things of the sort. One of the things that I think is still confusing people in the market is that they heard the July guidance treats transferable credits as akin to those that are MTTCs, akin to qualified refundable credits, and therefore an increase to globe income and not a reduction to taxes. And they're viewing any credit as transferable as an MTTC for all purposes. Unfortunately, that is not true. Once the credit has been transferred, like happens in so many taxpayers that purchase credits, it is no longer transferable again. And so not an increase to globe income, but instead a reduction to cover taxes. And therefore, generally thought of as more detrimental, except to the extent that the discount is quite limited, the reduction to the covered taxes itself will be limited. It'll only be equal to the amount of the credit minus the purchase price. Thanks for that helpful background and summary, Kevin. So let's turn our focus to the next topic that Marcus mentioned that was addressed in the July AG the Qualified Domestic Minimum Top-Up Tax, or QDMTT, guidance. Marcus, can you give us a brief refresher on what the QDMTT is and fill us in on some of the issues addressed in the July AG? 
So the QDMTT is just one of the charging provisions in the Pillar 2 framework. And the way this rule is operating, it is, is allowing the local jurisdiction, so the source country where the income is arising, to step in and collect any top of tax related to that income. If it doesn't do that, then the tax will be payable under one of the other charging provisions, that being the income inclusion rule and the under tax profits rule. And so this rule is, is giving the local country first taxing rights to collect any top of tax that is arising with respect to income earned in its jurisdiction. And importantly, that tax comes before CFC regimes. So taxes such as guilty and subpart F are you know, not taken into account for purposes of the QDMTT. That was one of the key principles that was established in the prior rounds of guidance. As a matter of logic, it would seem like a large number of jurisdictions, particularly those with lower rates of tax, would have a strong incentive to implement QDMTT to, again, just keep the top of tax in their jurisdiction as opposed to being paid somewhere else. And so there's then now an expectation that there's going to be a proliferation of these QDMTTs around the world. And there's good reason to think that because virtually every major investment hub has already made a public statement that they will likely implement a qualified domestic top of tax to take effect either this year or in 2025. The key principle that was established in the February guidance was what does it mean to be qualified? And what the rules establish as a general principle is that to be qualified, the tax needs to produce functionally equivalent outcomes as the income inclusion rule in the under tax profits rule. But that's a very general concept, and it was unclear how to apply that concept in very specific circumstances. That's what the July administrative guidance has done, is it has started to apply that principle in particular cases like joint ventures and minority-owned constituent entities, while it addressed the treatment of CFC regime taxes, prior guidance didn't address how we should think about taxes paid to another jurisdiction related to hybrid entities or dividends, how net basis tax on dividends would be treated. There was also ambiguity in terms of what is the transition year in circumstances where the qualified domestic top of tax applies in, say, 2024 but the income inclusion rule and the under tax profits rule don't apply to the income in that jurisdiction until, say, 2025. And so the July guidance has started to fill in the blanks and clarify all of those specific circumstances, including all the ones I mentioned and 10 or so others. And so what this July administrative guidance is doing is it's just starting to really sketch out all of the hallmarks that a domestic tax needs to meet in order to get qualified status under the Pillar 2 design. So there's the question of whether a domestic minimum tax is a QDMTT, and then now there seems to be a separate question of whether that QDMTT satisfies the safe harbor. Um, Marcus, can you explain how the permanent safe, safe harbor for QDMTTs work, and how does a jurisdiction avail itself of that? Yeah, so just to illustrate what's at play here, if there is, let's assume, 100 of globe income in a jurisdiction, and let's assume that there's 10 of covered tax in the same jurisdiction, and so there's a 10% effective tax rate giving rise to a $5 pillar two charge, that tax, assuming it is in a jurisdiction that has a domestic top of tax, 
that five would be payable to that local country under the qualified domestic top of tax. And I think the simplistic way of thinking about this is that is then the end of pillar two. So the 15% policy objective has now been achieved because the local country has now collected the additional five to get the income tax at a rate of at least 15%. But the way that the rules are drafted is that wasn't the case. You still had to run through the math for purposes of the income inclusion rule and the under tax profits rule. And so what those two rules would see is they'd still see 100 of income and they'd see 10 of tax and there would be an additional five payable under the IR and UTPR, but you could then reduce that by the amount of tax payable under the QDMTT to then arrive at zero additional liability under the IR and UTPR. And so you get to, assuming there's no base differences, the same outcome. But the concern from the business community was the compliance and the administrative challenge of having to compute two different effective tax rates, first for purposes of the QDMTT, and then again for purposes of the IR and UTPR. There was also a concern that if the QDMTT is based on the local accounting standards, then you're having to do two different ETR calculations for the same jurisdiction using you know, potentially different accounting standards. And so that only added to the compliance and the administrative challenge that uh, businesses were concerned about. So in light of those concerns, the OECD introduced a QDMTT safe harbor in the July guidance, which effectively transitions it away from that credit approach that I mentioned and into an exemption approach. Under If a QDMTT is eligible for the safe harbor, you would just go through that same ETR calculation that I went through. You'd see 100 of income and 10 of tax. You'd pay the $5 to the local country, and then that would then exempt you from the IR and the UTPR. And so that is generally how it works and why it was included. But as you say, Gary, there's a number of requirements that need to be met in order for that QDMTT to be eligible for this safe harbor. And the first requirement is it needs to be a QDMTT in the first place. So all of the tests that we talked about earlier in terms of how joint ventures are treated, how stateless entities are treated, all of those are relevant here. So the first question is, is the domestic tax of a qualified nature? If it is, then you're at least potentially eligible for this new safe harbor. But then there's three additional tests that need to be looked at. The first is called the QDMTT accounting standard. The second is called the consistency standard. And then the third is called the administration standard. I think the most important one of the three is the first one I mentioned is that accounting standard requirement. If the local jurisdiction chooses to use the accounting standard of the ultimate parent entity that the consolidated financial statements are prepared using, then that would be consistent with the accounting standard requirement. But the expectation is a number of jurisdictions may prefer to use their local financial accounting standard as opposed to the UPE accounting standard. And here there's a number of additional requirements that must be met in order to be eligible for this safe harbor. That includes the local financial accounts need to be either audited or used for some other purpose. So that's one requirement is the local financial statements need to be subject to a financial statement audit. There's also tests around the fiscal year. So if the local operation has a different fiscal year than the ultimate parent jurisdiction, then that would not be eligible for this safe harbor. So you can see that the OECD has drafted this very tightly, and there's a number of requirements that, that need to be met. It's not yet clear how many QDMTTs will be eligible for the safe harbor. 
But I think the hope from the business community would be, you know, many of the QDMTTs would be eligible for the safe harbor because it brings that compliance and administrative benefit that I described in the beginnings. Great. Thank you, Marcus. Now let's turn to the UTPR safe harbor. So the UTPR has drawn the ire of many in the U.S., particularly of House Republicans, because for U.S. M&Es, the UTPR will be the sole mechanism that can bring low-taxed U.S. income into the scope of the globe rules. And because of the prevalence of general business credits here in the U.S., such as those for R&D, many U.S. M&Es may surprisingly find themselves under the 15% globe ETR rate. The July AG provides some reprieve from the application of the UTPR, at least in the short term, in the form of a transitional UTPR safe harbor. Kevin, how does this safe harbor work? The first thing to note about the UTPR safe harbor is that it only applies in the jurisdiction of the UPE, meaning the only U.S. operations that will get the benefit of the safe harbor are those of U.S. multinationals, since a foreign multinational would not have a U.S. UPE. The second thing to note is that it only applies in respect of calendar years ending December 31st, 2025. So it is one year limited in scope as compared with the CYCR safe harbor. And the following aspect to note, which makes this safe harbor less desirable than the CYCR safe harbor, is that a taxpayer can't rely on the UTPR safe harbor one year and then in 2026, seek to rely on the CYCR safe harbor. You can only rely on the CYCR safe harbor where you've used it the previous year. So that makes the UTPR safe harbor sort of a matter of last resort. That is only where you can't meet the CYCR safe harbor. Even though the UTPR safe harbor lasts for one year less than the CYCR safe harbor and relying on it prevents a taxpayer from being able to utilize the CYCR safe harbor in 2026, making it a matter of last resort, it still is very helpful for those U.S. multinationals whose ETR in the U.S. falls below 15%. And the reason for that is, is because some of the most common ingredients for failing the 15% ETR test are either non-refundable credits, such as the R&D credit, or that deferred tax assets and liabilities are marked down under the full calc to 15%. And so where a taxpayer fails the CYCR safe harbor, it's often because it gets no relief for non-refundable credits, such as the R&D credit, under the CYCR safe harbor, because those are generally accounted for as a reduction to cover taxes. And so the CYCR safe harbor is of no use to taxpayers that face top-up tax for that reason, and therefore using the UTPR safe harbor in 2024 and 2025 isn't really giving up anything for 2026 because taxpayers suffering top-up tax in light of their non-refundable credits wouldn't get the benefit of the CYCR safe harbor in 2026 anyway. Generally, Kevin, under what circumstances would it be beneficial to make the election for the UTPR safe harbor? So where the UPE does not implement a QDMTT, 
meaning that top of tax would be paid under the UTPR, if at all, that would be a precondition. And then it would be in a jurisdiction whose nominal rate is 20% or more. And the taxpayer would, under the full calculation, suffer an ETR of less than 15%, despite that the nominal rate in such jurisdiction is above 20%. It gets the taxpayers out of paying top-up tax in 2024 and 2025. Thanks, Kevin. So as we wrap up this episode, I'll give my last question to you, Marcus. What are you looking out for in the week's and months ahead with respect to Pillar 2? I will be looking for developments with respect to national legislation, and then I'll also be looking for additional OECD guidance. On the national legislation side of it, as I mentioned, there's only three jurisdictions that have thus far enacted the rules. And as you will be familiar, there's 140 jurisdictions in the inclusive framework. So the vast majority of jurisdictions still have not enacted the rules. I would expect between now and the end of the year, we will see a wave of enactment in various countries, including the whole of the EU, between now and the end of the year. So that's the first thing that I'll be watching. And then related to that, I think it's, it's as we've emphasized in prior episodes, it's really important to compare the national legislation with the OECD model rules and commentary and identify if there's any discrepancies, in particular unfavorable discrepancies, between the national legislation and the OECD rules. And then the second aspect is, you know, the OECD continues to put out guidance clarifying various aspects of the rules. I am expecting that we will get the next tranche of administrative guidance as soon as October or, or perhaps early November. And then I think the OECD is also planning on putting out one final tranche of administrative guidance in December of this year. And then I foresee continued administrative guidance from the OECD, you know, all the way through the end of of even next year, because it seems, you know, like issues are arising every week that require guidance from the OECD. So those are the two big things I'll be watching is likely a wave of national legislation and enactment and then at least two tranches of additional administrative guidance from the OECD this year. That's helpful. Thanks, Marcus. So thanks, Marcus and Kevin, for joining us today to discuss the July AG and for updates on what to expect as implementation continues across the globe. As you both explained, there's certainly a lot more to consider in terms of modeling the impact of the Pillar 2 rules and then in determining whether some relief may be available during the transition period. We'll definitely keep an eye out for further guidance from the OECD and then developments as implementation moves forward. As always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care.